Good morning. It's good to see you guys again. If you've been with us for a few weeks, we've been doing a series on the Holy Spirit and examining who he is and what his work is. We've talked about the saving work of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the keeping work of the Holy Spirit, that he keeps all those who are in Christ. It's a great assurance. And then last week we talked about his empowering work, how he fills us to serve him uh, with the power that God imbues through the Holy Spirit. So that's what we've addressed so far. This week I want to talk to you about the leading of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, this is one of those subjects that for Christians, for followers of Jesus, I think it's, it's sort of an assumption, it's a given that most of us operate in that the Holy Spirit does lead, uh, that, you know, we have some level of expectation that that's part of his role, but there's a lot of confusion around how that takes place. Would you agree with that? Like how, you know, how many times have you been in some scenario, some situation, you thought, I really need God, I need your guidance, I need your spirit to lead me, to show me what to do. And you felt just at a loss for, for you know, it, it just feels like silence on the other, other end of the line, so to speak. And so I want to talk a little bit about the leading work of the Holy Spirit. Now let me say this, for those of you who, you know, are here often but are not followers of Jesus, I want to encourage you to think about this. This idea that I think most people I know, except perhaps maybe just the, the, the most staunchest atheists uh, really walk through life with a sense that they need some guidance at some point. I, I think most people recognize a need for guidance at some point in their life. And I would argue that from a Christian worldview, anyway, the reason that's there, the reason you sense any need for guidance is because God has designed you to need it. It's because you as a human person, at least from a Christian worldview, the perspective is if we feel a need for guidance, if we feel a need for sort of something outside of us to help us understand what to do or where to go, that's evidence that we were made to need that. That it's not happenstance, it's not just sort of uh, luck of the draw that that's taken place in us. You know, if you don't believe in God, you do have to answer the question, why would I ever feel a need for guidance if there's nothing outside of me to give that? Right? So the longing, the sense of need comes from somewhere, from a Christian worldview, it's because we're made in the image of God and he, he has designed us in such a way that we are not fully in operation until we're operating under his guidance and in his instruction. But every time I think about this idea of how does the Spirit lead us, which is the question we're just going to try and answer today. I want to give you some insights from the Word of God about how the Spirit does this work that is His work to do, which is to lead God's people. How does He do that? Every time I think about that, I think about, uh, it's an old preacher's illustration story. It goes something like this. There's a guy whose house was uh, subsumed by a flood. I mean, a flood was coming down the valley. It hit his house. He was a little late to get out the door, but he made it scrambling up, up, up onto his roof just as the floodwaters kind of filled his house. And as he got up on the roof, he distinctly heard the voice of the Spirit say to him, don't fear, I'm going to save you, which is a good thing to hear in that moment, right? So he's thinking, don't fear, I'm going to save you. And he thought, oh, this is great. And no sooner, I mean, I'm talking 30 seconds after he heard this assurance, this voice of assurance from God, I'm going to save you, don't worry. Here comes a boat floating down the flooded street. The boat sees him, pulls over and stops, and it says, come on, get in, we're here to save you. And he says, no, no, God has told me he's going to save me. It's okay, you can go. Guys in the boat look at him a little funny, say, Okay, they go, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure God has said he's gonna save me. So the boat moves on. 10 minutes later, helicopter drops down out of the heavens. 
guy on a rope, lowers down onto his roof, says, we see you, we're here to save you. And the man responds, no, no, God has said he's gonna save me. I'm good, you can go. Guy looks at him funny, climbs back up on his rope, up back into the helicopter, helicopter takes off. The man sits there for another 10 minutes and then a wall of water washes over his house, washes everything away and ends up taking his life. And he's a little miffed when he gets to heaven. And he goes to God and he says, you said you were gonna save me, where were you? And God's response to no one's surprise was, I sent a boat and a helicopter, what more did you want? We get confused about how God speaks, about how he leads, about how he guides sometimes, right? I think that's a good illustration of that reality. And so as we look at this question today, how does the Spirit lead us? I want to encourage you that there are some, I think, some good concrete principles, some realities that can help you. Uh, Here's what I want to encourage you and invite you. I'm going to pray for us here in a minute. But as we go to pray, I want to invite you. Let's make this really practical, okay? Let's make this really concrete. Some of you need guidance right now, yes? Some of you are like, you're thinking about an issue. Like, I need God, I need you to guide me now. And I'd encourage you, when you come here on Sunday morning, I hope you come with an expectation that God is going to meet you in this place. He's gonna speak to you, not just through the preached word, although that's important, and not just through sort of capturing you into joy through worship, but he's going to speak to you about specific things in your life. He's, he's, his spirit is here among us, yes? So what his promise is, his spirit is here with us and part of his spirit's work is to lead us and you need that guidance. So let's just ask him for it and have a sense of expectation that perhaps he would give us that today, okay? So hold that in your mind as we pray and just even ask God. I'm gonna ask for you, but you ask him too. God, would you, would you guide us? Before I leave here today, would you show me what you want me to do? And we'll talk a little bit about how to take a posture that prepares us to then receive that, okay? So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, We love your promise to us that you would send your spirit when you ascended into heaven and that it would be a great joy for us that we would have this guidance from the spirit that he would teach us and correct us and rebuke us and train us and help us to know you. And so our prayer today is that you would, through your Holy Spirit, that you would glorify yourself and glorify the Father that Holy Spirit, you would direct us and lead us. And I wanna pray for my brothers and sisters sitting in this room today, that as we are here together today, seeking you, we've come because we're seeking you, we pray that you'd make yourself known to us. We pray that you'd make your will known to us. Whatever the specific circumstances and situations, take your word now and apply it to us. Give us receptive hearts. And if there's anything in us, Lord, that resists your leading, that perhaps doesn't want to hear a certain word from you, and if you were to speak that, we would resist it, would you bring that down in us? We, we probably, Lord, do not even have the ability to bring it down ourselves, although we want to. We'd ask you to help us by bringing down any resistance, any wall of resistance to you. Just bring that down so that we can receive your leading. I'd ask that for me, and I'd ask it for my brothers and sisters. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you got your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 14. Great spot to go if you're wanting to kind of investigate who is the Spirit, what does He do, what is His role in the, in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 are really the two primary places in the Gospels where Jesus speaks to us about the work of the Spirit. It has some great things to say there. 
So let's try and answer this question. How can I learn to follow the Spirit's leading? And the first truth we see about that in the Word of God is this, is that in order to follow the Spirit's leading, we have to believe that He has a plan and that He will lead. That's the first thing. That, that sound, sounds really obvious, doesn't it? But I think that a lot of us end up operating in a place where we're not sure, we're not sure that God is actually going to lead. I think probably a lot of us believe God has a plan. We're not real sure he wants to show us what that plan is. You know, perhaps you grew up in a household where, you know, some of the parenting might have been a little insufficient. And the, and the reality was that mom and dad sort of expected you to guess what they wanted from you. You know, they didn't fully communicate it or make it clear. And, and the way that you operated or learned to operate was, if I can guess what it is mom and dad want from me, then I'll get their approval. And so you spend a lot of time trying to read the tea leaves, right? Trying to read the signs. Like, what is the look on the face? What is the, like, where did they go? What did they do? How are they, what are they communicating? Perhaps passive aggressively. Um, what are they saying and how do I read that so that I can know what I should do in this moment? And we've taken that same attitude, that same thought, and we've applied it to God our Father as if he is fickle uh, and passive aggressive in his communication of his will to us. And I, and I wanna say, you have to let go of and dismiss that idea of how God leads because that's not who he is. He's a good father and he wants to lead. He sent his spirit into the world and into you and I for followers of Jesus so that we could have his leading, so that we could understand what he wants us to do. He does not want you to guess his will to prove that you love him. That's not what he's interested in. He is very interested in making his will clear to you so that you can follow and walk with him and through that obedience then show that you love him. Look at John chapter 14. I'll show you what I mean. In verse 25 and 26, Jesus says this, he says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay, so there's two promises there that Jesus is making about the Spirit's work. The first is he says, he will teach you what? All things. In other words, anything you need to know, the Spirit will show you. He will teach it to you. And then the second thing he says, and he will bring to remembrance or bring, cause you to remember all what? All that I have taught you. So in other words, he's saying the Spirit's work will be twofold in this teaching, guiding, revealing kind of work. He will both remind you what I said while I was here on earth with you, disciples. Jesus, the things that I taught you are the word of God and he will teach you. He'll remind you what those things are. So you don't have to worry about like, what if we forget? The Spirit will come and he'll remind, he'll instruct, right? The second thing he says is, and I think this is basically an extrapolation or a continuation of that reminding us of what Jesus taught us. He will teach you all things. In other words, Jesus taught me many good things, but Jesus didn't say who I should marry. Jesus, the Bible nowhere says who I should marry, yes? I haven't found it. Did you find it? I didn't find the page with that will for my life, right? And so there are things where I need the Spirit's guidance. I need Jesus to teach me and to lead me. And when he says the Spirit will teach you all things, I think what he's getting at there is the Spirit will give you all the guidance that you need. You can count on him to do that. And how rich is this? Because in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, there's a set of rules, which we call the law, which God used to reveal both the holiness of his character and to show us our need for a Savior, because we could never keep that law perfectly ourselves. That, that's what the law is really all about. 
But in showing that to us, you've got this Old Testament group of people who are being led in terms of how to follow God by an outside source, something outside of them that is, they're trying to live underneath. And now the new covenant that Jesus ushers us into through his death and resurrection now comes with inner leadership because the spirit that is sent to us, the helper, comes and lives inside of us and guides us from within. So we don't have to have an outward set of rules to follow. We have the one who wrote those rules living in our very heart then instructing us how to live. Is that a better way? It's a better way, right? That's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, what I want you to see is simply this. What Jesus is promising here in John chapter 14 is that the Spirit has a plan, God has a plan, and the Spirit will lead you in the execution of that plan. You can, you can count on that. Now, if you don't believe that, do you see why it would be hard to receive the leading of the Spirit? So that's sort of point number one, is this we just need to recognize like, and, and expect that the Spirit is going to lead us and that we're not going to have to kind of move around through the wilderness to try and figure that out. Now, let me give you, in, in light of this promise, right? So I said, this is a promise that Jesus is making to us about the work of the Spirit. So the question that probably pops up for a lot of us is, well, I've got times in life where I have felt like I needed the Spirit to guide me and I just haven't been sure about what to do. I, I've felt like at a loss. So what am I to make of that? In light of this promise, John 14, what am, I, what am I to make of that situation? Let me give you three possibilities why it might be, why the leading of the Spirit might not be available to you, or not, I shouldn't say it that way, why it might be hard to detect it. That's the better way to say it. Why, it might, why you might struggle to detect it, okay? The first is this. The Spirit might be inviting you to wait. The Spirit might be inviting you to wait. Now, this is an important point. Uh, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, which is just a classic. I mean, it, you should all get it, grab it, read it. It's an old one, but it is so good. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, is a chapter on God's guidance. How does God guide us? And in that chapter, he, I'm going to kind of give a bit of a summary here. He gives six reasons why we might struggle to detect God's guidance. And one of those six reasons that he gives is a failure to wait a failure to be willing to wait. Now, I said God's not fickle. He's not looking to withhold his leading from us, but often he will have us wait because it's only in the waiting that we are reminded that what we need more even than we need his leading is we need him, that he is what we need most, that he is our father, his love. So even in the waiting, he communicates his love, our need, joy in him. So there are moments where for the most faithful followers of Jesus, it seems like there's a cloud or a veil of darkness over where we should go or what we should do. You should expect that there will be moments like that. And in that moment, what God is saying, he's saying, wait on me, wait on me. And what Packer says, and I think is really wise, is when, uh, when it's time to move, illumination will be given. When it's time to move, illumination will be given. And, and to be honest, and this is true of me at points in my life, is we start moving too soon. We haven't waited. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of waiting, sitting on my hands and not doing anything. I'm talking about the kind of waiting and expectation and seeking of God that says, I, I want to know you and I want to walk with you. And I commit myself to wait upon you. So that's, that's part one. Another reason, another possibility why we might struggle in light of this promise to detect God's leading through his spirit is that we have insufficient practices, insufficient practices. And what I mean by that is 
that, well, let me actually say the next one. So I'm going to say insufficient practices is a reason, and the third reason is an insufficient attitude or belief. Insufficient attitude or belief. Now, those two things combined, practices and beliefs and attitudes, essentially are how we create a life that is a context into which the Holy Spirit would speak. Having sufficient practices and having sufficient attitudes and beliefs. That's how we create a context into which the Spirit would speak. The thing I want you to understand today is this. As we talk about the Spirit's leading, what we're not gonna talk about is like, okay, when you hunker down in prayer, this is what the Spirit's voice sounds like. It's like a really rich baritone, so you'll recognize it. Right? Anyone who tries to give you what that sounds like or looks like is, is fooling you. Right, The most important thing we can give you, that I can give you as your pastor about how to discern the Spirit's leading, is how to orient your life in such a way that it is a context into which the Spirit would speak. Think of it this way. Uh, milk jugs are a pretty distinct shape, and when you see a milk jug, what do you expect to be in it? Milk, right? Because it's, a, it's the right context for milk. You're like, yes, this is what a milk jug looks like, right? What I want my life to look like is an appropriate context into which the Spirit would be poured because it's so evidently made for the Spirit. It's shaped like the thing you would expect the Spirit to be poured into. And the way that context is developed, the way that milk jug comes to be, Spirit jug, if we want to call it that, right? The way that comes to be is through sufficient practices and sufficient attitudes and beliefs. Now, let me talk about insufficient practices for a minute. The first insufficiency in practice is just prayerlessness. It's prayerlessness. One of the things you'll see if you read through the book of Acts, really through the whole, Old Te- the whole New Testament, is that every time the Spirit's leading, there's not a whole lot of discussion about like, okay, then this is what the prayer time looked like where the Spirit led, but prayer is the underlying assumption at every moment where the Spirit has spoken. The people of God are praying. They're praying. And in that prayer, the the next sentence is just, and the Spirit said, and says what the Spirit said. Right? The, The report is almost always coming out of this context of prayer. If we are prayerless, Right? If, if we don't have that practice set up in our life, it becomes really hard to discern the Spirit because the assumption is the primary place that the Spirit will lead is in prayer, is in time of prayer. And so that's a, that's a, a good reminder to us. If I want my life to be the context into which the Spirit's leading comes, I, I can't be prayerless. Now I said the second thing is insufficient understanding or, or beliefs and attitudes, Right? And so the thing I want you to see here is that it's certain expectations, beliefs, and attitudes that communicate to the Spirit our willingness to receive His leading and then to act upon it, right? So when I have an expectation that you are going to lead, right, when I have an attitude, we're going to talk about some specific attitudes as we, as we go further, but the most obvious one is going to be this disposition to say yes to whatever the Spirit reveals to us, right? That an attitude that says, like, if you're, if you're going to reveal this, if you're gonna lead me in this way, I've already said yes to whatever it is that you're gonna lead. I'm not treating disobedience as, as if it's even an option. It's an option I took off the table long ago, right? That's the kind of, you know, attitude. The other is the expectation, and friends, if I could encourage you in this, I had a whole season of life where my expectation was that the, the, the Spirit's leading was always the hardest thing. Whatever the hard option was, 
that was definitely what the Spirit was leading in. And, you know, the Spirit does lead us to do hard things sometimes. Sometimes I was right. The Spirit was leading me to a hard thing, and I needed to choose it. There's no doubt about it. In fact, we'll see that in Paul's life here in a minute in the book of Acts. But what I recognized is the reason my expectation was that the Spirit's leading was always the harder thing is because I had a skewed, I had a skewed understanding of who God was. I had a skewed understanding. My thought was that God would surely never give, give me anything that brought me pleasure. My role was to serve him out of duty and to do whatever he said. I'm his slave. He's in charge. And surely this is going to be a joyless, fruitless trudge uphill. But you know what? He's God and I'm not. So there you go. That was a completely skewed understanding that led me to always choose the harder thing rather than understanding that what we just sang actually about the power of the resurrecting spirit in Romans chapter eight, verse 11, that the spirit is a life-giving spirit. He's a resurrecting spirit. He's a spirit who knows how to bring fullness of life and joy to you. And even, this is the miracle of the spirit, even how to do that through calling you to hard things. Right? We can't avoid the hard as if God always leads to whatever is easiest. That's not, you don't want to make the alternate mistake, yes? Don't make the alternate mistake that I was making. But don't make my mistake either and assume that it's always the harder thing, always the thing you would least want to do. That's the one he's got for you. That's false too. So these are the underlying assumptions and attitudes that we have to, we have to correct, right, and have sufficient ones so that we create that spirit-shaped jug of a life, if you'll excuse the analogy, all right? So then let's look at the next thing. So the first thing in terms of like, how do I follow the Spirit's leading or how can I learn to follow it is believe he has a plan and will lead. Let's talk about the second thing. Because we have to learn how the Spirit has already led. We have to learn how the Spirit is already led. So some of us spend our time saying, Spirit, I need you to lead me and guide me. And really what he would say to us in response is, I've already spoken about that. I've already led you. Let me give you a couple of ways that the Spirit has already led us. So that, this is really refreshing, we don't even have to ask the question anymore. Isn't that good? Right, we don't, like there are certain things where if we say, Spirit, are you leading me? The answer has already been given and we don't actually Need to ask again, right? So the first way the Spirit has already led us, he's already led us by giving us his word. Now you remember that we looked last week, if you were here, we looked in in, uh, Ephesians where Paul talked about spiritual warfare and he was talking about that. He talked about the weapons of that spiritual warfare and one of those, he says, take up the sword of the what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In other words, what he's saying is, this isn't just the word of the Father. It's not just the word of the Son that we've been given here in the Bible. It is the word of the Spirit. And so we can expect the Spirit will not contradict himself. And once he's spoken about something in the word, he's given it to us. If it helps you, sometimes I think we think of the commands in Scripture as commands, which they are, and they are to be obeyed. But it might help you to think about them as ways the Spirit has already led. If you're looking for the leading of the Spirit, here it is already been given to you. The most common examples I run across, or the most common example I run across is, should I marry this person? I get that question a lot. All right. Should I marry this person? All right. Now, there are a lot of factors that play into that, but what is my first question going to be anytime I'm asked that question? If the person asking me is a follower of Jesus, I'm going to ask, are they going after Jesus with all their heart? Do they love him? Are they a believer? And if the answer to that question is no, we don't have to go any further. Because the spirit, like to say, spirit, should I marry this person? 
and they're not a believer, what's the Spirit's response? I've already spoken about that. Not, not, I don't hear that in a condescending, dismissive way. I've already spoken about that. But just here is the Spirit going, hey, you want leading? I've actually already provided it. Here it is, right? I'll give you another example. Uh, Barna Group just recently came out with a study on evangelism, which I am finding fascinating reading right now. And one of the things that they found as they looked at the American church, American believers, and how we think about sharing our faith with others, one of the things they found is that uh, believers that they talked to who were under 35 years old, 35 and under, over 90% of them said this. They said, we believe that having a relationship with Jesus is absolutely the most important thing in our life. It is, it is, you know, central, it is paramount, and we get joy from it. That same group of people, when asked, another question responded this way, over, so 47%, almost 50, almost half, said, but it is wrong to share my faith with someone else in the hopes that they would also believe what I believe. So now do you see the disconnect between those things? There's a disconnect between those things. Like, right? And I'm not gonna go into all the reasons for that. It's probably rooted in sort of some universalistic principles and philosophy that have taken root in our society as well as some relativism about what is truth and how does it operate. That's for another day, okay? Uh, but the, the reality for our purposes today is this. There is a significant disconnect between the idea that Jesus is my king and I am overjoyed, there's nothing better in my life than a relationship with him, and yet that I wouldn't share that with someone else. You can imagine the person who answers those questions those ways, if asked, is the Spirit leading you to share your faith? Like if, if you were going to pray, Spirit, do you want me to share my faith with that person? That that person might answer that the Spirit would not, is not leading them to do that. But the Spirit has already spoken in his word because he's given us the great commission. This is what I want us to understand. The Spirit has said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Right? This is the word of the Spirit that Jesus spoke to us. So if the question is, should I share my faith with that person? Is that a question I need to ask the Holy Spirit? Why not? Because he's already told me. He's already spoken. He's already revealed that. He's already given the leading that I need in that area. So those are a couple examples of, of how the word speaks to us and leads us. The second one, the next one I want you to see is that he always leads us in opposition to the desires of the flesh. This is Romans chapter eight. So again, if you wanna flip over, we're gonna spend a few minutes in Romans eight, so you can flip with me. We'll have it on the screen as well. But in Romans chapter eight, there's this discussion. The whole first part of the chapter is a discussion of what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? So it's, a, it's the exact question we're talking about today. Like how is someone led by the Spirit? What does a Spirit-led life look like is really the whole issue of the first you know, 11 or so verses of Romans chapter eight. And it's this rich chapter. The most obvious thing we're gonna see as we look at this is that what Paul is gonna say to us, what the Spirit is gonna say to us through Paul is I will always lead you the opposite direction of the desires of the flesh. Because the desires of the flesh are in opposition to my desires. So look at what he says. Look at how he, how he talks about it. Romans chapter eight, verse five. It says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Now let me pause right there real quick. Paul is saying those who live this way set their minds on this and those who live that way set their minds on that. 
but recognize that he's writing to a group of people he already knows are believers, and in verse one of this chapter, he's already said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's not addressing these people as if it's possible to be a believer but not be led by the Spirit. He's saying those who are believers will be led by the Spirit. This is the normal Christian life is what he's saying. And all of that, because you're led by the Spirit, is actually why you're not condemned. In verse two and three, he says, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What are those laws, right? The law of the Spirit of life is this. It is so, the, it is so assured that wherever the Spirit is, life will be there, that we can call that a law. It's an assurance. Where the Spirit is, there is life. The other law, the law of sin and death, is wherever sin is, death will be there. Death will follow wherever sin is. So that is such a certainty. It's so a fabric of our reality that we're calling that a law, just like the law of gravity. Where sin is, there is death. Where the Spirit is, there is life. That's the juxtaposition. That's the two categories of this whole chapter again and again. Sin and death, spirit and life. Sin and death, spirit and life. And then he's going to go from that, talking about the law of sin and death, to talking about this idea of the desires of the flesh, okay? So we just read verse 5. Pick up with me again at verse 6. I'm talking really fast right now. Slow down. All right, here we go. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Okay, we said where there's sin, there's death. Verse two, right? Where there's sin, there's death. Now he's just said, he's equating sin and flesh, desires of the flesh. Because what he said, where the flesh is, where the flesh is followed, that's what? Death, okay? So, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And again, he's already answered that question. It's not if, perhaps, Christian, the Spirit of God is in you. He's already said, the spirit of, the, he's already said, the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in verse two. So his assumption is not if, maybe this is true for you, Romans, maybe it's not. His assumption is this is true for you. This is true for you. So you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. All right, so let's pause there. So again, here's what, here's what, the point he's making. I mean, let's just get back up to a very high level. I was kind of talking in the weeds there for a second, but come back up with me now. Get some oxygen, okay? To the high level. Here it is. He's simply saying this, the desires of the Spirit are in opposition to the desires of the flesh. So what does that mean in terms of following the Spirit's leading? We're talking about, he, we're saying he's already led, right? Already led through his word, right? He, and the other thing we can know is anytime we're wondering, Spirit, are you leading me in this direction? I can ask the question, is that related to the desires of the flesh? And if it is, then he's not leading me that direction. Now let me clarify. Should we clarify what the desires of the flesh are? That might help a little bit, right? So in this context, when, Peter, when uh, Paul is talking about the desires of the flesh, he's talking about two categories of things, essentially. The first category is this. Anything that is contrary to loving God and loving my neighbor. 
In other words, he says the flesh makes it impossible to keep the law, right, that which revealed who God is, his holy nature and his holy character. And Jesus said the summation of the law. If you want to know how to keep the law, if you want to know what it is, the fullness of the law is kept in someone who loves God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and loves their neighbor as themselves. So there's two great categories for us to think, is this a desire of the flesh or is it a spirit leading? Well, is it going to help me love God and love my neighbor? Is that simple enough? Yes? Okay, awesome. Yeah, okay, good. There, was, there wasn't a lot of head shaking. That's, that's what I was looking for. All right, good. The second thing that the desires of the flesh, the definition of desires of the flesh here in Romans chapter eight is this. It's not just that which would prevent me from loving God and loving neighbor. It's also anything that would convince me that I can be righteous on my own, that I don't need the sacrificial work of Jesus. Anything that would boast me up or boost me up in spiritual pride and self-righteousness. That's essentially the marks of the flesh here in Romans eight. Anything that reeks of self-righteousness anything that prevents love of God and love of neighbor. So let's use a concrete example, right? If I'm holding on to unforgiveness, would the Spirit ever lead me to hold on to unforgiveness? The answer is the Spirit's already revealed the answer to that. I don't have to ask him, should I forgive? Why don't I have to ask him that? Because he's already revealed in his, in his word, he's already revealed that anything that is marked by the desire of the flesh is not of the Spirit's leading. And if I hold on unforgiveness, I cannot love God the way I should because I show that I have not received God's love or understood what his love is like and how astounding it is that he would love me. I'm not responding to his love then. The second thing, am I loving my neighbor if I hold on to unforgiveness? The very definition of love is to, is to reconcile, right? To overlook wrongs done, to forgive, so clearly I'm in the desires of the flesh. I'm following the desires of the flesh if I'm walking in unforgiveness. The last one is this. Um, if I hold on to unforgiveness, if I hold on to unforgiveness, what was our last category? It wasn't just, the, it was the self-righteousness category, right? Here's what unforgiveness does. Anytime Jesus talks about forgiveness, the motive he gives us is recognize how much you've been forgiven and that's your motive for forgiving others, right? He talks about that a lot. And so what that means is when I hold on to unforgiveness, what I'm doing is building up my own self-righteousness because I'm failing to see how much forgiveness I needed. And when I don't forgive, what happens is I stop forgetting how much forgiveness I needed. And when I stop forgetting that, it becomes harder and harder to forgive and I walk in unforgiveness for longer and longer and I grow harder and more bitter. That's what happens. That unforgiveness produces that result in our lives. Now, again, the desires of the flesh, are in opposition to the leading of the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit. So is unforgiveness a desire of the flesh or is it a leading of the Spirit? It's a desire of the flesh. So you can always use that as a template to put up any possible leading of the Spirit. Does this lead me towards the flesh? Does it lead me towards the desires of the Spirit? The last one I want to point out in terms of things he's already led us in is that he leads us from consolation, not desolation. And I'll explain that to you. He leads us in consolation, not desolation. Romans chapter eight still, verse 15. Go down to verse 15, just a few verses down. And let's find this. He says there, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery 
to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So right after talking about the leading of the Spirit at the beginning of Romans 8, he then goes on to talk about this remarkable relationship that we have with God, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the King. And the reason I think that Paul is doing that is because he's reminding us those who are led by the Spirit have to begin from this understanding that they are first and foremost loved children of God in order to make a good decision. If you ever want to make a good decision, you have to begin by operating from what is fundamentally true about your position before God. And if you believe and operate out of anything other than that, you cannot follow the Spirit's leading because you're already missing the platform that you need to launch off of, right? I mean, imagine like a diver, like going off a a springboard. He needs the spring in order to get up and make a good dive, right? And so as he goes to dive, he leans into the springboard and he propels himself forward and upward and outward to get the momentum he needs to make a good dive. That's something like what we're getting at here when we say, unless I believe what Romans 8.15 says about me and who I am in Christ, I'm not going to be able to make a good decision and discern the Spirit's leading in other issues that are secondary and, and beyond that. Do you follow that? So Gordon Smith in his book, The Voice of Jesus, talks about this. In fact, I'm stealing his terms when I use those terms, consolation and desolation. And the way he says it is this. Look, there is this consolation that we receive by knowing who we are in Jesus. That's a consoling idea, an affirming and ministering idea that says you're God's son or daughter, yes? Yeah, absolutely. And when you believe that, you can make decisions based upon that reality. But when you don't believe that, you operate out of desolation, which is to say, I either have to earn God's love, I have to figure out how to make my own way in the world because he's certainly not going to show me. He's abandoned me, he doesn't love me the way he's said he has. If you're operating out of that, is it gonna be possible to make a really good decision? No, so the first thing we have to see, or one of the things we have to see, is that he has already spoken about who we are. And because he has now, we can make spirit-led decisions out of that truth. Smith, Gordon Smith, makes this illustration, which I think is really helpful. So sailors at sea in the old days, how did they navigate? How did they, how did they cor- uh, chart a course? They used the stars, yeah, right. So they used the stars. Now, what they would do is they would chart a course on a clear day, on a clear night, right? The night's clear, the stars are shining, we can chart a clear course, and we can get going. Two days later, the clouds roll in. Is that the moment when the sailors are gonna say, let's chart a new course, No, they're not going to make a decision about their course. They're going to stay the course they're on until the clouds depart and they have clear skies again. Because when they have clear skies, they can see. That's like operating out of consolation. We make decisions when we can see the stars. Operating out of desolation is going, you know what? I got complete cloud cover right now. You know what I'm going to do? Change all the decisions in my life. Let's go this way. You're going to be thrown off course. You have to see the stars in order to make a good decision. That's, I think it's a, good, a point well made uh, by Smith there. All right, so let's move on then from what he's already revealed to the last two things I want to show you about how do we follow the Spirit's leading. The third thing, third big point of the sermon is this. We should expect the Spirit to speak through the church. We should expect the Spirit to speak through the church. Look with me at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 says this. 
It's one little verse. You'll read past it a thousand times when you're reading this, but it's one of my favorite moments in the whole book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, verse two. In verse one, he's listed a bunch of followers of Jesus. And then in verse two, he says, while they, these followers, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Do you know why I love this so much? Because what it's telling us is that this is a normal pattern for how we would discern the Spirit's leading, that we would live life in close connection with other believers who would then help us discern the Spirit's leading. Right? And it doesn't always have to be that they were praying, they were fasting. Again, they were setting a context with their practices. Were they prayerless, church? No, they weren't prayerless. They were praying, they were fasting, they were worshiping. That's a great reminder that worship sort of tunes the heart to receive the leading of God. But they're doing all these things. They're doing them together. They're closely connected. They are seeking the Lord together. And in that moment, the Spirit speaks a word. Who does he speak it to? To them, right? Did you get that? It doesn't say the Spirit said to Paul, and then Paul went, hey, guys, I think I should go. Oh, yeah, we affirm. It spoke, he spoke it to all of them, right? Now, this is something that we can seek out together. We can ask for it. Like we don't have to just wait for the Spirit, I think, to, for us to gather and then to wait for like an audible voice to come. That's rarer, by the way, in the Scriptures when there's an audible voice or a vision given. Those happen, but they're rarer. But there's this process of communal discernment. So what's interesting in Acts chapter 13 is that the Spirit speaks, right? They're, they're worshiping and they're fasting and then the Spirit speaks. And then what do they do right after that? They pray. It says they're worshiping and fasting. You can assume there's probably some prayer sprinkled in there. But then after the Spirit speaks, you think, oh, awesome, let's go. No, that's not what they do. The Spirit speaks, set aside Barnabas and Paul for the work that I have for them. He doesn't say what that work is. Did you notice that? Well, what's that work? I think what we can assume that in verse three, when it says, so then they prayed and laid their hands on them and sent them, that in that prayer of verse three, what was happening is the Spirit was clarifying through the body what that work was. To go on mission to the Gentiles, in this case, for Paul. So I love this. We should expect that we need the church, we need the church to, in order to be able to discern the leading of the Spirit. Anyone who's operating solo all the time is not gonna be very accurate in discerning the leading of the Spirit. And the reason is the Spirit loves to lead through his body because it humbles us. Anytime I say, I, I can't do this alone, I need others to come alongside me to discern, that's so humbling and it's so good and honoring to the Spirit because it reminds us we need the body, we need each other. He designed us for each other. And none of us, none of us is the determiner, the final arbiter of the will of God. There's not a single one of us that can look to the other and say, this is what you must do, God has declared it. But together we discern the leading of the Spirit. That's really the point here in Acts chapter 13. Now, this is not always easy, okay? It's not always smooth. So here's what's interesting. In the last point, we're gonna go to Acts chapter 20, but I'll just give you a little preview here, okay? So in Acts chapter 20, what we find is Paul is gonna return to Jerusalem and he says that I don't know what is awaiting me, but I do know that the Spirit at every turn, in every city where I go, the Spirit is telling me that persecution and suffering are waiting for me in Jerusalem. But his assumption is that he's supposed to go to Jerusalem in spite of that, right? 
But then in Acts chapter 21, in verse 4 and verse 11, if you're taking notes, you can jot those down. The most interesting thing happens. There are prophets in every city. So in Tyre and Caesarea, two different cities, God's Spirit speaks a prophetic word about Paul's sufferings. In fact, Agabus, which is a great name, right, grabs Paul's belt, wraps it around his own arms, and says, this is how the person who owns this belt is going to be bound when he arrives in Jerusalem. So again, that's what Paul believed the Spirit was leading him to, right? And then he's getting that affirmed through these other groups of believers that he's kind of visiting as he's on his way to Jerusalem. But here's the interesting thing. In verse 4 and verse 11, all the believers who tell him he's going to suffer in Jerusalem also tell him he shouldn't go. So now you've got this interesting situation. You've got the church, these other believers saying, hey, they're speaking a correct prophetic word. What they're saying is going to happen, but they're drawing the wrong conclusion about what Paul should do in light of that. And so the question becomes, well, which is it? Is it prophetic word, I'm going to suffer, I should go the other direction? Or is it what Paul believes, I've received a prophetic word, I'm going to suffer, and I've got to go towards it, not run away from it? How do we discern? What's interesting is, as you see, what happens by the end of these conversations with these churches is that the first time I read it, I thought, well, gosh, how did Paul, how did, I guess Paul just assumed he was right and they were wrong. But what's interesting is the very last statement that is made is that in tears and weeping, the church sends him to Jerusalem and it says, believing that it was the will of God. So in other words, they didn't just go, oh, okay, well, I guess Paul says, therefore. What they did is they hashed it out together and they prayed together and they waited together. And then those who believed that he should run away from the suffering came to the conclusion that he had already come to, which is he should go towards the suffering towards the persecution. Do you see what I'm getting at with communal discernment there? It's so important for discerning the Spirit's leading. Okay, let me move to the last point because we're, we're just about out of time here. The last one is this. Resolve that obedience to the Spirit is your only option. Resolve that obedience to the Spirit is your only option. Some of us want to be led by the Spirit, we say, Spirit, show me what to do in this situation, but we treat whatever he tells us as if it's optional for us. In our heart of hearts, and we, only you can know if this is true, okay? But in your heart of hearts, ask the question, if I want to be led by the Spirit, am I deeply committed to doing whatever the Spirit shows me he wants me to do? Or am I holding it as a, he'll show me, and then I'll decide whether or not I want to do that? In, in that same, those same verses, Acts chapter 20, verse 22 through 24, there's a really great word that it gets used. It says, Paul, being constrained by the Holy Spirit, knew that he was going to go and endure suffering. In other words, did Paul want to suffer? No, he's not insane, okay? Nobody's looking for that. But he knew he had to. And so it said the Spirit constrained him. And what you and I can understand from that is that Paul, long before the moment of the Spirit's revelation, had determined that there was no option B for him. That when the Spirit reveals what he wants done, when the Spirit leads, Paul, the assumption was not then I'll determine whether or not I should do it. It was already determined for Paul. If the Spirit says it, if the Spirit leads, my only answer can be yes. Church, one of, the, one of the most important things, one of the most important things, right up there with 
setting those practices in place, right? I said there are attitudes and, and beliefs and dispositions that create the context for the Spirit to speak. I would argue that the most important among those attitudes is an attitude that says, whatever you say, I will do. I'm not sure we should expect to get the Spirit's leading when we're treating that leading as optional for us. And that's really, that, that's kind of the final point. Now, in, his, in, a, in a book written by a guy named Jack Deere, uh, he talks about how we discern the Spirit's leading, and he identifies three character traits that really mark the person who hears the voice of God. And I would tend to agree with these character traits, and they are these three. It is the person who is humble, the person who is available, and the person who is willing. That that's the person. It's not rocket science, right? If I want to be a person who receives the Spirit's leading, then I need to be a person who's humble, who's available, meaning I'm listening, and I'm seeking, and I'm waiting, and I'm willing I'm going to say yes. Those are, the, those are the people who receive word from the Lord and leading from the Spirit. I encourage you to, to ponder that. Okay, let me pray for us. I'll invite the worship team to come up and just continue. We'll close our time with a song. Even as we do, you know, where you're in need of the Spirit's leading, can I encourage you this week in your life groups, you'll find in your notes and the questions uh, that we've provided for your life group that we're inviting you to do a process of communal discernment. So to come to your group with an expectation that God is gonna speak to us together. We're gonna wait in prayer together. He's gonna guide us and speak to, one, to, to us on one another's behalf. So let me pray and then we'll close our time in singing. Lord Jesus, I pray that as my brothers and sisters hold in front of you these things where they need your leading, I pray that you would speak to them. Have you already spoken to them in your word? Are they willing to say yes to you in obedience? Are they operating from consolation or desolation? I pray, Lord Jesus, that these would be clarifying questions. Are they leaning towards the desires of the flesh or towards the life that is in the spirit? Would you make our lives a context, Holy Spirit, into which you delight and take pleasure into speaking, uh, into which you would speak? We pray for that. Now, would you receive our worship as we just declare our need for you? Lord, we need you. It's good to sing that together as we depart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing together.